It has been said that uh, many people have about enough Christianity to make them miserable, but not enough to save them. <laughs> in other words, they're not very integrated in their faith. Uh, they have just about enough Christianity to create an appearance that they have faith, but they really don't show much difference between that and a person who does not have faith. In this letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing a very personal letter whereby he's defending and asserting the fact that he is a genuine apostle <clears throat> and that his, he and his associates are genuine ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit, not of the letter, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's chapter 3, uh, verse 6. So in this letter, Paul is asserting his authenticity and power with clarity and um, uh, a, a genuine uh, affection for these people. But he's also exposing the uh, spiritual influence and effects of the false gospel that is coming through his opponents at Corinth. Now, let me be clear about this. This isn't a letter that Paul's written because he's being obnoxious or unreasonable or stubborn. Paul's opponents are advancing a false gospel. They're preaching, in fact, he says in chapter 11, that they are preaching a, another Jesus, that they're operating under a different spirit and advancing another gospel. This isn't Paul refusing to get along. This isn't Paul uh, in a position where he's simply refusing to agree to disagree on some minor points. No, this is, this is the difference between the gospel of the new covenant of the Spirit. A new covenant, by the way, that was consecrated by the blood of Jesus himself. And a completely different gospel, though... His opponents claim to be the true, legitimate apostles of Christ. So you can imagine what it was like for the Corinthians in the first century to have these false apostles, what Paul later calls super apostles, in their charismatic, successful, well-presented, uh, eloquent manner, putting down Paul for, for a number of reasons, and confusing the Corinthians as to who they should follow, who they should believe. So that's what we are being confronted with as well in this letter. Because I'm telling you, most of what we understand today to be pastors or clergy have far more in common. And it, I, I take no glee in saying this, by the way. Have far more in common with Paul's opponents than they do with Paul himself. So that means you, my friend, those within the sound of my voice are in danger of coming under the influence of these false apostles in the 21st century as well. So this study is very important to you and to your family, to your friends, those dear to you, because it is intended to elevate our understanding of what it means to be under a new covenant of the Spirit and to 
also sharpen our discernment so that we can understand all the other comers, <laughs> all the other uh, ways that the enemy will come at us with, with alternative gospels. And so let's get right into our text today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I've entitled this uh, lesson, A Fully Integrated Character. And you'll see what I mean by that as we go through. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 reads this way, quote, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. Paul has a boast to make, but it is a boast in the grace of God and not in himself. His opponents in Corinth, the false apostles, also have a boast, but it is in their own worldly wisdom. They boasted in themselves. And this, of course, is a critical lesson for us in this study. Since the beginning, since the beginning of the church, uh, evil workers have sought to re redefine the gospel as a program which affords human boasting. Now let me explain what I mean. The influence of Greek philosophy and Judaism upon the gospel of grace in the first century was hard to resist. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as preached by the apostles, was, if you will, the new kid on the block. Greek philosophy, Roman paganism, and Judaistic uh, legalism have been around for centuries. So by the second century, many of what we call the so-called church fathers had modified the gospel into a grace-assisted program of self-justification under the influence of Judaism and Greek philosophy. That's simply a historic fact. So by this, I mean a gospel. The church fathers had conceded the necessity of divine assistance, but a gospel that places man himself and his actions as the ultimate cause of his own salvation. In this scheme, for instance, one may confess the necessity of grace, but deny the sufficiency of grace apart from one's own contribution. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's opponents operate as ministers of the letter of the law as the means to righteousness. They operate as ministers of the letter of the law as a necessary means by which one gains righteousness before God, though they professed to be servants of Christ. Their boast 
in the final analysis was in their own effort, whereas Paul's boast was in the grace of God at work in him. So we have to ask ourselves right out of the gate, where is my boast? I'm just going to let that question hang there. Where is your boast? And what do you boast? The outcome for this type of ministry where we boast in ourselves is ultimately hypocrisy. A double standard between what we profess and what we live. So let's look at that a little closer now. Paul is telling his readers that his boast is in the fact that he and his associates have conducted themselves both in the world and within the church with an integrity and godly sincerity. In other words, Paul is the same person in the world that he is in the church and vice versa. Now, Some of your Bibles will read with holiness and godly sincerity, and that's okay as opposed to integrity and godly sincerity. You can, they're interchangeable. In fact, what's more holy than genuine integrity? So to be holy is to walk in integrity. That is, to be an integrated person. That's what we mean by integrity, don't we? Integral. Integrated. We are an integrated person. So what you profess and how you live are in harmony. To have integrity is to be who you say you are as a Christian. And to have godly sincerity is to be authentically like God. That's what we mean. That's what godly means. Godlike. You may recall, in fact, that the meaning of the word sincere has its root in the uh, phrase meaning without wax. Let me explain. There was a time in the ancient world when merchants would fill cracked or otherwise flawed pottery with wax and seal it over with paint. But in the heat of the day or the heat of the oven, the wax would melt and expose the cracks and defects and the person then owning the pottery would realize they had been duped. So while Paul later confesses himself to be a jar of clay within God, which God has placed the treasure of the gospel. He is without wax. He is the real thing. So Paul is saying in his conduct in the world and in the church supports his profession in word. He's the same person in his character as he is in what he says. What a powerful thing that is. He is what he says he is, as revealed by his conduct especially when the church, and even when the heat is on. I remember watching a newscast one evening, and it showed a particular politician, who will remain nameless, attending a funeral for another famous figure. And that politician, after the funeral, was shown to be walking away from the gravesite, and the cameras caught him laughing and being jovial, that is, until that politician noticed the cameras were on him, and suddenly he changed his whole demeanor. He went back to the somber approach of his appearance and his face in order to look good for the cameras. In other words, that politician was filled with wax. 
he was a chameleon. He changed with his environment. But Paul is what he says he is, and it's revealed by his conduct, especially within the church, and especially when the heat is on. And this is so, he says, because he relies upon the grace of God and not worldly wisdom. It is the grace of God alone that makes Paul a fully integrated follower of Jesus Christ and an apostle and not some program of worldly wisdom. Let me just give you an example here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul states, quote, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that a beautiful phrase or what? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me, Paul goes on to say, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10 So grace doesn't cause us to work for our salvation, but grace does cause us to work in our salvation, to work out that which God has deposited in us. Sometimes it's easy to think of the grace of God as passive and, or God looking the other way when we sin. But Paul is telling us here that, that the, the grace of God that caused him to work harder than all the other apostles was at work in him, though he considered himself the least among them. Grace compelled him to work and not be passive in his ministry. And to understand that boasting, therefore, belongs, therefore, to God and not people. Even though it was Paul who was working harder than all the other apostles in his ministry, he understood that it was the grace of God that compelled him to do so. So he had no grounds for personal boasting. His boast was in the grace of God. See, and that is your boast as well, my brother or sister. Your boast is in the grace of God working out in you. However mature and however functional and however effective your ministry is, whatever that ministry may be, and every Christian has some form of ministry, it is always due to the grace of God in you. There's never a time when we can say, okay, God, I got it. I'll take it from here. It doesn't work that way. In fact, as we mature in the Lord, we only become more aware of our dependence upon the grace of God. If our ministry is effective, it's because of the grace of God and not worldly wisdom. So Paul was a fully integrated believer. And what I mean by that is that the message of the cross was not only professed by his words, but by his lifestyle. Now let's look closer at this worldly wisdom. You can turn with me to James chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James says this, quote, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life 
by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote, end quote, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. End quote. But the wisdom, let me just go on to verse 17 here from James. Quote, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace leaving, loving, excuse me, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. End quote. Again, that's James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So James is telling us, as did Paul, that the profession of wisdom and understanding must be backed up by our lifestyle and deeds or it's worthless. There's a lot of worthless religion in the world. A lot of hypocrisy. I get um, emails from a, investigator, a Christian investigative uh, company uh, pretty much daily. A Christian investigative reporter. And I'm always heartbroken. I almost don't want to subscribe any longer because throughout the world there's daily reports of sexual immorality, sexual abuse, financial abuse, exploitation, verbal abuse, physical abuse, scandal, high and wide within the church. What's happening in those situations? What is going on in those situations? You have church leaders who are filled with, filling the air with flowery words and style and uh, certain ways of doing things that attract them believers, but their personal lives are no better than the rank pagan. Moral decadence reigns. So James is telling us that the profession of wisdom and understanding must be backed up, and it must be backed up by our lifestyle and deeds. So that's a fully integrated believer. Now, the alternative, as I just said, is the one who pretends to be wise and understanding and yet harbors bitter envy and selfish ambition in their heart. In other words, bitter envy and selfish ambition have no place in the church of God. James goes on to say that this type of wisdom stands in contrast to the grace of God, heavenly wisdom. And James says it does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, make a note now, demonic. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. May use Christian symbols, may use Christian terminologies, may look Christian, and from a distance, you wouldn't know that it wasn't until you get close enough to see their behavior, their conduct, or if you hear about it in some scandal-ridden uh, tabloid. So this is serious language, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
James is saying there are professed believers who operate out of an, out of an earthly, unspiritual, demonic influence. And its evidence characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition. And all such earthly wisdom can produce, says James, is disorder <clears throat> and every evil practice. James would add that Paul was operating out of wisdom that comes from heaven, however, which is first of all pure, meaning fully integrated, genuine, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and here comes that word again, sincere, without wax. Now, later in our study of 2 Corinthians, Paul also identifies certain ministers who are in fact servants of Satan, who appears himself as an angel of light. But how different than the conduct of Paul and his associates at Corinth, who act in integrity and godly sincerity both in the world and in the church. So Paul has a boast, but it's a boast not in himself, nor in worldly wisdom, but in his reliance upon the grace of God by which the message of the cross, hear me now, has become fully integrated into his character, and thus his conduct, both in the world and in the church. Paul is a jar of clay. He's in the potter's hands. But he's a jar of clay that is without wax. And his conduct is not motivated, of course, to gain final acceptance before God. That's not the point. His conduct is tied to the fact that he is, he is in Christ. He is already accepted in the Beloved. His conduct isn't an attempt to earn God's acceptance. It is, flows out of the fact that he is accepted before the Father in Christ. And so Paul's model here is a cause for pause, isn't it? For all of us. Most professing Christians do, uh, believe the gospel of Christ and him crucified. They may not yet fully understand the implications of that belief, but they do believe in the message of the cross. What's necessary is to go on and integrate that message into your character by the grace of God. And this defines, therefore, the work before us all, beloved. The work before us is to grow from partly integrated believers to becoming fully integrated believers. Listen, the message of the church, the mission of the church, I should say, is to present the image of Christ into the world, both in word and in deed. The world should be able to look at the church and see the image of Christ. And to the degree that it does not, and sadly, it most often does not today, the church is failing in its mission. What good does it do to talk flowery language about the Great Commission and talk flowery language about soliciting donations to missionaries when the local church looks more like a neighborhood community center or worse yet, some kind of a brothel than it does the church of Jesus Christ itself. 
if a newcomer comes into our church, will they be encountered by the image of Christ or by something else? Will they be encountered by the image of Christ or by bitter envy and selfish ambition or empty tradition and ritual? These are important questions. So what is the means to a fully integrated faith? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13, For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Listen, we all come to faith in Christ by means of the gospel. And we all begin the Christian life with only a partial understanding of that gospel. We understand enough of it to have placed our faith in Christ. And there's no shame in possessing only a partial understanding, unless, of course, we fail to grow in the grace of God into a full understanding. And that's what's at risk for us this morning. That's what's at risk for us today, is that we would come short of growing in the grace of God. I know of parents who express great concern for their wayward teenagers or their wayward adult children who have left the church have, or at least have become very compromised in their profession of faith. And sometimes these same children will retort back to their parents, hey, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, I'm good. What are you worried about, mom and dad? See, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a dead faith There's no shame in having a partial understanding and then you grow to adopt and grow into a full understanding of the message of the cross. What's shameful is when we profess to have a partial understanding and then fail to grow at all. All the grace of God comes to us by means. Remember, we're relying upon the grace of God to fully integrate our character to the gospel. And the grace of God comes to us by means, meaning the scripture. In the case of our text, the writings of the apostles is the means by which we may grow from a partial understanding to a full understanding of the message of the cross and thereby become a fully integrated believer. So Paul tells us again, what is that? That's in verse 13 that he does not write his readers anything they cannot read or understand. Think of that. Let me make this comment. The scriptures are meant to be understood and applied by all. Christianity, beloved, is not a mystery religion. And the scriptures are not something in which only an elite group of ascended leaders or seminary professors can understand though sometimes pastors and clergy behave like that. But Paul assures his readers they can understand what he says, though he does hope they will grow in their understanding. So while there is not an ascended elite, as amongst the philosophers, there are differing levels of understanding and spiritual maturity within the church family. In fact, if you like, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2 for a moment. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And it reads this way, quote, I am writing to you, dear children, 
because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Isn't that beautiful? John is acknowledging that there are differing levels of maturity within the church, and he's writing to every one of those people within those differing levels. He's writing to children, he's writing to young men or adolescents, spiritual adolescents, and to church fathers and mothers, people who have matured in the faith, who have become fully integrated. And then I'll read you this, uh, 2 Peter beginning with verse, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power, His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, through what? The knowledge of Him. Through these, He has given us every very great and precious promises so that through them, the texts of Scripture, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And then Peter acknowledges that there is a growth process that is very natural in the faith. He says in verse 5, For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. That's scary forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. And then he summarizes in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, this is, a, this is an in-house conversation. This is an in-family conversation. My brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. He doesn't say do these things in order to be elected, to be among the elect. Do these things to show yourself to be in the elect, because you are in the elect. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the work of the believer today? What's the work of you and I today? It is to move from our partial understanding, a partial integration of the message of the cross into our lives, to a full understanding, a fully integrated character in Christ. The life of the believer is to be a testimony to the grace of God, both in the world and in the church, both in word and in conduct.
Our daily lives are to be fully integrated with the spoken message of the cross. And this is accomplished by means of the apostolic writings. That is to say, our prayerful study of the New Testament, better understood to be the New Covenant. When we approach the scriptures, we always read even the Old Covenant, as we'll learn later in this study, through the lens of the New Covenant. Not the other way around. Nor do we regard the Old Covenant to be on equal plane with the New Covenant. They're not. There are systems of theology that teach that and are simply destructive, simply wrong. We always approach our reading of the Old Covenant through the lens of the New Covenant. In other words, we're reading from, we're reading from the New Testament backward into history. So let me conclude now with just a few comments about this mutual boast that concludes our text. Paul wants his readers to fully understand what he has written so that he and his readers can share in a mutual admiration, affection, even as boast, even as so that he can boast his fellow participants in the grace of God. Let me read that. He says, um, As you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, we're all in this together, Paul is saying. I may be the apostle, but you are the body of Christ, and I'm a part of that, and you're a part of my apostolic ministry. We're all in this together, and we'll have a mutual boast in the grace of God. So the Christian faith, as I've already stated, is not a mystery religion within which we work toward an ascended status. Paul is not in the ascendancy here. He's a servant, much abused and slandered and uh, rejected many times, servant. But there is no hierarchy in the church, at least no legitimate hierarchy. Jesus himself made it clear that to his disciples, telling them they were not to assume titles and status over each other. Jesus alone, he said, I myself is the, am the teacher, the father, and instructor of the church. And whatever of these gifts are worked out among us come from him. That's Matthew 23, 5-12. So there is one Lord, and, one, and no one leader or group of leaders have any legitimate claim to rule over a brother and or sister. Such power grabs have everything to do with the worldly wisdom that Paul is rejecting and nothing to do with the grace of God. Nothing to do with the integrity and the godly sincerity in conduct that's modeled by Paul and his associates. But sadly, such a attempt to create a hierarchy in the church has been and remains the default of any church for this one reason, because that church has failed to integrate the message of the cross into its character. For instance, the Apostle John writes of a man named Diotrephes in his third epistle. He writes of this man named Diotrephes, who loved to be first or preeminent, maybe a better translation, and thus usurp the place of Christ in the church. 
This man would not welcome even the Apostle John in the church. That's 3 John, verses 9 through 10. Think of that. This man had so asserted his elevated hierarchical status in the church that even when John came to the church, the Apostle John, the one who was with Jesus for three years, the beloved Apostle, this man rejected John's presence in the church. What a contrast to Paul, who later tells the Corinthians, quote, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. 2 Corinthians 1.24 So Paul is quite the different than Diotrephes. Paul is saying, it's by faith that you stand, not by my permission. And so this is the difference between a genuine minister of the new covenant of the Spirit and every counterfeit ministry, and please hear me now as I close, that distorts or altogether dismisses the ministry of the new covenant. And that's a topic that we'll speak more about in a future lesson, Lord willing. But today I hope you have heard that our boast is not in ourselves, but in the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that brings about in us the integrity, the holiness, and godly sincerity in our conduct as well as in our word, so that Christ is imaged into the world through the church, into our, each other's lives. Listen, we serve a risen, living Savior. He is present with us. Let us never fail to acknowledge the body of Christ as being the residence of the Lord Jesus in his image and in his glory and in his very presence. Amen.